Welcome to Tea for Two, the podcast for women in golf and the men who support them. With your host, Karen Harding. Welcome. Our guest today is Jane Crafter. Jane is one of Australia's finest professional golfers and one of the game's very best ambassadors. Jane has had an amazing life in golf, from being a member of a well-known South Australian golfing family, to an LPGA tour player, to a golf course design consultant, to broadcast commentary and golf media, to co-founding the Legends of the LPGA. There's not much Jane hasn't seen or done in her time in golf, and we are very fortunate that she shares much of that with us today. Jane, hello. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm happy, happy, happy to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you, Jane. Thank you for being here with us. Jane, one of the great things about golf is families, isn't it? Generations playing together. And you were literally born into golf, weren't you? I really was. My father, Brian, was one of South Australia's best golfers, along with his brother, Murray. And from teenage years, they've been involved in the game of golf as assistant professionals, touring professionals, teaching professionals. And dad eventually got into golf course design along with my brother, Neil, and then also into broadcasting, into golf commentary for the ABC. And so, yes, I have been in very much a golfing family. Uh, My mum did play golf a little bit. She wasn't that great, but my one brother, Neil, who's 18 months younger than me, has had a terrific career in golf, both as an amateur, uh, never did turn professional, but he is a wonderful golf course architect, along with his partner, Paul Mogford. They have a wonderful business together. So yeah, uh, family, very, very important to me. And, you know, I think growing up in that family with dad as, you know, my mentor and my coach all of those years really was a huge benefit to me in this great game. For some people, being a member of such an illustrious family can be either helpful or an extra pressure. It sounds to me as if you were saying that it was helpful rather than a pressure. Is that right? Oh, definitely. You know, dad put absolutely zero pressure on either Neil or me. And it was always our greatest fan We learned the game from him from an early age. One of my fondest memories of playing golf all together as a family was at the North Adelaide Par 3. And we're on the Par 3 on the first hole. You know, mum hit off, Neil and I hit off, and then dad hit off on the first hole. It was probably 90 yards, a few, you know, 80 metres or so. And he makes a hole in one. And I'm like, that's my dad. (laughs) I was so proud. So... Yeah, very, very many wonderful memories, you know, going out to the golf course with Dad when he was the pro at Flagstaff Hill on the weekends. Neil and I would spend all day up there with him each weekend. And, you know, when he had time between lessons, he would make sure that we were on the straight and narrow and really taught us the great fundamentals of the game. And I think one of the best things he ever really stressed was to spend more time on your short game than on your long game. And that's really carried me through very Mm. well. It's held you in good stead through your playing career, hasn't it? It has. Jane, you played most of your golf out of Kuyonga, I think, in Adelaide, didn't you? Yes. What are the standout moments for you in your amateur career? You know, I think obviously winning state championships, one, you know, a couple of those was terrific. One of my fondest memories, really, even though it wasn't anything that I won, was being runner-up to Lindy Goggin in the 77 Australian Women's Amateur over at Lake Karanup. And, you know, she was an icon of the game, a good handful of years older than me. And for me to reach that final at that time in my career was a, was a big plus. And I learned a lot from Lindy because she whipped me on the greens. And so that really uh, taught me the benefits of being a really good chipper and putter. But I think, too, representing my country was fantastic. So many times overseas, you know, I've been to a lot of different countries playing in British amateur, New Zealand amateur, Belgian amateur, Canadian amateur, and having won a couple of those, namely the New Zealand amateur and the Belgian amateur in 1980. So team events, fantastic, you know, representing the state in the Gladys Hay, always terrific, and team events playing for my country. You know, you you just can't, shall I say, think that that was uh, anything less than what I've done in my professional career because it really meant a lot. You were also studying pharmacy throughout your amateur career too, weren't you? Yes. And that's one thing that mum and dad really stressed both 
for Neil and me. It was an importance of a good education. Neil actually ended up going to the University of Adelaide getting a degree in architecture. And I went to the South Australian Institute of Technology and got my degree in pharmacy. And once I graduated, did my year as an intern, then I registered with a company that would, you know, slot you in for relieving work for a pharmacy. So I was able to plan my working career almost around my golf as an amateur. So I knew which events I was going to play in. So I filled in around that time and worked as a pharmacist. So it was a wonderful career for me and really stood me in good stead once I did turn professional because I knew I had a great career that I could always fall back on. And I think that's what mum and dad really wanted to impress upon both Neil and me. Given that you had that career waiting for you, was it a tough decision to turn professional or not? No, not really. Although I don't think it was always a goal as a kid and as a a young amateur for me to turn professional. In the end, I think after having such a good amateur career and eventually being not chosen for the Espirito Santo trophy uh, in 1980 was really disappointing. And so I decided that I wanted to take my career really into my own hands. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to have my career be objective instead of subjective. I'm not going to have a selector tell me that I can't do something. I just wanted to have my scores, you know, show for themselves what I could do. For some people, the transition to the tour can be a pretty tough proposition, can't it? So what sort of support did you have and what difference did that make to a young fledgling pro? Well, when I did turn professional, I remember Dad saying, okay, you really have to believe you can do this. Do you believe that you can do this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Spalding Company were always very supportive of me as an amateur, you know, would give me, you know, some bowls and clubs and bags and things like that. And they gave me a small sponsorship. I sold my car, you know, I packed up a couple of suitcases and a golf bag and away I went. Eventually, I did get some support from a businessman over here in the States when I was playing the mini tour. And, you know, that helped me keep my head above water while I was playing the mini tour after I missed my tour card on the first go round in 1981 in January. And that really meant a lot. But I think what you're getting at really is the support from home. You know, the support from home, from family really meant a lot. And I remember getting lots of letters from dad and Neil. By that time, my mum sadly had passed away, but they were there for me. And you gradually make friends, you know, and then you build a support system, but it does take time. I I remember being very, very homesick. I remember Sharon Smyers, uh, Sharon Galbraith at the time, we turned pro together and we were playing a mini tour event one time. Where we were staying was like a mile away from the nearest shop. And we walked a mile to get chocolate. We were that homesick. We thought that would help really didn't help a lot, but a lot of fun times travelling with Sharon. Well, there's a lot of people that would walk 10 miles to get chocolate, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> This was only one there and one back, so that wasn't bad. What was the role that Peggy Kirk Bell played in your early career? Well, as I said, I missed my card on my first go-round and I ended up playing on the WPGT, which was the mini tour slash developmental tour at the time. And one of the players that I met early on in the piece was Sally Austin. And I remember her mum and dad were there as well watching us play. We were paired together and we became really good friends. And as it turned out, Sally grew up very close to Pinehurst, North Carolina and played all her golf at Pine Needles, which was owned by Peggy Kirkbell and her husband, Bullock, who was still alive at that time. And so you know, on off weeks and stuff like that. And when that mini tour was over, I'd go back to North Carolina and Sally and her family would kind of look after me and I got to play and practice there. And Peggy really let me have the run of the place. I was just sort of like a part of the furniture. And this golf course, Pine Needles, is a Donald Ross gem. At that time, it hadn't been redesigned like it has now, but the facility was fantastic. They had a lodge, they had wonderful practice facilities And I could just hang out there all day. I mean, it was just like a kid in a lolly shop. It was just absolutely the best place for a fledgling professional to be able to play and practice. And I still to this day, even though Peggy's not with us anymore, her family, her three kids and their families run the place. And 
whenever I go back there, I'm still part of the family. Well, I think that's lovely that she's done that for you and all that practice around a facility like that has no doubt contributed an enormous amount to the quality as well as the longevity of your career. We'll come back to pine needles in a moment. Just have a quick run through your professional playing record, which includes individual wins in a mini tour event in Texas not long after you arrived. Your two Australian Ladies Masters in 1992 and 96, and an LPGA victory in 1990 at the Farmore at Inverary, defeating no less than Nancy Lopez by a shot. There's a nice one on your resume, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. That was the only official LPGA event that I did win. I did win the JCPenney mixed team in 80, uh, was it 87 with uh, Steve Jones. And even though that was unofficial, that was the first win of both of our careers. And Steve went on to actually win a US Open. So he was a terrific partner. But yeah, no, definitely beating Nancy was a highlight. Well, you nearly did it twice because you had a runner-up finish <laughs> to it two years later. And you took her till the second playoff hole to get past you. So I remember that well. It was interesting. It was a par three. And I never really had quite the right club for that hole because it was a little bit elevated. And I didn't want to be short. And so I ended up on the back fringe and, as it turns out, did not get up and down to tie and head on. So she won on that hole. But, yeah, Nancy has been, you know, such an icon of the game and one of the dearest and sweetest people you could ever meet. So if you're going to lose to someone, you don't mind losing to Nancy. No, that's exactly right. Uh, Now there's another one there, the 1997 Toyota Women's Australian Open. Where does that rate on your own list of achievements? I think it rates just behind my only official LPGA win. To have won my own national Open, national championship, it's a treasure. And to have done it on, you know, one of the sandbelt courses at Yarra Yarra was a thrill. I remember celebrating, I think, with a bottle of Grange, if I seem to remember correctly. I think it was a pretty good night (laughs) on the Sunday night. (laughs) Of course, I'm giving away my love of red wine. So I'd like to take you back to that Open, if I might, because next year actually marks 25 years since that win. The main players on the last day were yourself, at that stage a 16-year LPGA Tour, we'll say gently, veteran, Joanne Mills three-year player on the LET, who was in fine form that year. She'd won the 1997 German Open. Mm -hmm. And Su Yun Kang, a 21-year-old rookie who'd only turned pro in April of that year. So you started with a course record 65 on the first day. Now, that's some pretty good golf right there. How were you feeling coming into the event, Jane? No, I was was feeling good because I think really the years from – you know, the 90s were pretty good to me. I was really coming into into my prime, I thought, you know, having won an LPGA event, couple of Australian Ladies Masters, loved coming home, really enjoyed Yarra Yarra. I, I thought it just suited my game really well, you know, because I always had a, a good short game. It wasn't super long and I was really playing well. So, yes, I felt very, very confident that this could be a good week. Well, you led from that first day and by the 14th hole on the third round, in fact, you were seven shots in front, three shots ahead of Kang, who put on an explosive streak and birdied uh, the last four holes on the Saturday to stay in touch. Mm -hmm. That lead then stretched to four shots early in the round. Mm -hmm. Joe Mills started off pretty well. Around the par three sixth, I'm not sure if you remember this part, but things started getting very interesting. Oh, I, I couldn't possibly not remember <laughs> the things that Sue, the things that Sue Young Kang unleashed upon me and the golf course. It was quite something, and I remember looking at my caddy Teresa Durand and saying, "She can't keep doing this, can she?" And she just kept doing it. Which is amazing. I don't know how many birdies she reeled off, Karen. Do you remember? Yes, I do, actually. She reeled off five in a row, four of them on the front nine, so that by the ninth, after the fourth, she had drawn level with you. So as you Mm. walked to the 10th tee, was your experienced mind a steadier there? I think so. I, I just felt, and as I said to Teresa, she can't keep doing this. That would be 
exceptional. And if she does, what can you do? You just have to play your own game. And I knew that I was still playing well. It wasn't that I had bogeyed all these holes and I was losing the plot. So I wasn't losing the plot. I just felt like I had the experience, as as you said, she was a rookie and had just turned professional. And she might start realising the enormity of the deed that she was, you know, unleashing. So, yeah, I thought, you know, I can steady the ship. And if I put on a good nine holes and just hit one good shot after another, you know, we'll see where the chips fall. Which is exactly what you did. You were still very steady on that front nine. And, of course, she was having this incredible streak, which she continued on the 10th, playing a beautiful shot from off the fairway to birdie the 10th. But we come now to the iconic par 3 11th. You played a magic nine wood. Now, it's interesting you bring up the nine wood because – you know, not being a very long hitter, I was never really that good at three and four irons. And so Lisa Lott Neumann was one of the first players on the LPGA to really to put those lofted Callaway, you know, fairway woods in the seven and the nine. And the par threes at Yarra just were absolutely perfect for those clubs. And I felt like I could hit my nine wood and my seven wood as straight as a seven iron. Mm. And they came in nice and high and soft. And of course, you know, the greens at Yarra Yarra, you know, are not exactly, they weren't exactly soft. And these clubs came in just really from, you know, from the heavens and just sat and they were absolutely perfect. Obviously, wind can change things, but on that back nine, they just really, you know, they were my friends. You played those beautifully all week, actually, but that shot on the 11th uh, was just magnificent. It was Pin high. It was a fair I distance. Think, and I think she put it in the bunker, didn't she? I she did. Remember, she put it in the back, back yeah. bunker and she had a particularly awkward stance, really, with a shot to a downhill green with not much room for error. As it turns out, she played a brilliant shot but missed the putt back. So she bogeyed the hole. What did you do, Jane? Well, I have a feeling I made the putt, but I just remember playing really well and just thinking I – can do this and I've done it before and she's not. And so put her out of my mind and just really start executing. And if I do that, then I can win. Well, that's a great insight into the competitive mind of a champion, I think, as well as to the value of experience because, yes, you did hold that rather sizable part, which was, I think, to the observer that shot on that putt, that hole, were pivotal to the end result in many respects because like a beautiful classic motor car, you just moved into another gear and moved smoothly away. A professional par on the 18th after uh, your drive went a little wayward. Oh, I've got a story about that drive, by the way. All right, let's hear it. I remember the 18th hole, you know, and I'm not sure what lead I had, but it was reasonably comfortable. What was it, two or three by that time? Yeah, you were um, three in front, yep. And so, you know, thinking the 18th being a par five, you know, no problem. So I did push my drive a little bit, a few metres into the rough. The rough wasn't really anything. It was just sort of some sandy sort of waste area, but, you know, under a big gum tree. And I remember looking at my ball and, you know, there were a couple leaves, you know, fairly close and I start moving it. And Teresa's like, what are you doing? <laughs> don't move the ball. And I go, don't worry, T, hands of a surgeon. I got this. <laughs> and I was thinking I was thinking to myself, yeah, she's probably right. I don't think that would be good. So, yeah, just, you know, just punch it, get it down the fairway. And I had a reasonable, you know, it wasn't blocked out or anything. I punched it down the fairway and hit it on the green and, and two putted. And uh, as it uh, turned out, I think Joe Mills ended up runner-up, didn't she? She uh, did actually, yes. Sue she dropped did. back. Yep. She, she tried valiantly, young Sue, but Joe just kept going and she overtook her on the yeah. last. Sue bogeyed yeah. that. Yeah. You finished, as I say, with a, a lovely putt to about two inches from the hole. So, of course, at this stage, you know you've now won the Australian Women's Open. Yeah, that's that's pretty magical. It's a pretty magical feeling. You know, to win any event as a professional is terrific. I mean, that's what you strive for. That's what you spend all your hours you know, building up to it, practicing hard. But when you've got a tap in and you know that you've won your own national open national championship, yeah, it's a huge thrill. And, you know, at that time, you know, my dad had had passed away and 
he did uh, see he passed away in 94 and he had seen me win the Australian Ladies Masters in 92. So that was a big thrill to have him, you know, be still around for that. But I did think about him and, you know, what an Australian Women's Open or Women's Australian Open would mean to him. But it really did mean a lot. And it's it's still, I do not have the Patricia Bridges Bowl, the original, but I do have a beautiful Waterford Crystal Bowl. And that will always be very much treasured. That win actually meant a lot to a lot of people there, I think. The crowd was certainly excited with the home victory and you were surrounded, of course, by fellow players, including Jan Stevenson, which was lovely because it had been 20 years since her own win in that. Yeah, it turns out, I think, you know, we're the only Australians to have won at Jan and myself and Kari. Mm. And I keep advocating, you know, for the youngsters, you know, it's it's time to put another Aussie name on it. But I think it means so much. Sometimes you can get in your own way. Players like Minji Lee and Suo and Hannah Green and, you know, Catherine Kirk and, you know, all those other great Australian players. The other players who are in the field, it's like just another tournament to them. And it doesn't, they don't put that immense pressure on themselves to break through and what it means to Australia and to Australian golfers, you know, to win your own national open. So I hope we can get through that. You know, I hope it won't be too much longer before, uh, you know, we got another Aussie name on that beautiful bowl. Well, I hope it won't be too far away either, really, because they've all had pretty good results this year one way and another, haven't they? Well, they really have. And I mean, Sue O just walked away with the two-year lease on a Lamborghini for a hole-in-one in in the last event. And then Hannah Green just won a million dollars US for the uh, Aon Risk Reward uh, bonus pool for the whole year that is on the men's tour and the LPGA. So yeah, they're doing fantastic. I'm really, really proud of them. And, you know, I'm their biggest fan, one of their biggest fans, apart from their family, probably. Yeah, no doubt. And Minji, of course, is our latest major winner. So it's looking good for Australian women players at the moment, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Since you had that win at Yarra, it's undergone a major restoration in the hands of Renaissance Design, headed by Tom Doak and supervised by Brian Slornick. Because of the pandemic, you probably won't have seen the restoration, but I'm just wondering, what would you hope that Doak might have preserved and what might you hope he might have changed? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I always loved Yarra Yarra's greens and the bunkering. And I think Alec Russell did did a terrific job, especially the par threes. So I do hope that he kept the integrity of the par threes. A lot of things have been changed, you know, over the years. I know my brother Neil has done a biography on Alec Russell, who was the designer there. Certainly, you know, a few of the holes could be rerouted a little bit better. I do hope that he puts many more tee boxes in for different levels of play and not just call them, you know, red tees, ladies tees. You know, I hope he puts, you know, three, four, five, different tee boxes and have them aligned correctly. I love the, the sand belt. Some of my fondest memories have been playing golf down there. Yarra Yarra, obviously, Kingston Heath, Royal Melbourne, Commonwealth, love playing there. Victoria Golf Club, I can't think and say enough about that course. That was one of the first times that I was actually able to watch LPGA professionals was in the Colgate Far East Championship. I was in the winning team in the Pro-Am. I played with Carol Jo Scala and Bill Whitten and Frank Sedgman. So that was really uh, pretty darn cool to be uh, an amateur playing amongst those LPGA pros. So, yeah, I do love the sand belt, you know, and I hope Tom has done a great job. I'll look forward to eventually seeing it and hopefully playing it sometime in the near future. Mm. Well, I hope that you do. Now that you've uh, recently had knee surgery, let's hope that those knees will take you around Yarra and you can have a look. Yes. (laughs) Well, it would be nice. I'd like to be able to walk uh, 18 holes again. Two partial knee replacement surgeries, one in uh, January and this past one just back at the end of September. So coming along, you know, day by day, it's a hard road, but I know it'll be worth it. Uh, Jane, you've spent a total of 24 years on the LPGA. What do you think were the best aspects of being part of that tour at that time? You know, I think for me, the camaraderie was absolutely fantastic. There weren't entourages with each player. We were our own separate entities and we, we all got along pretty darn well. Oftentimes we'd travel together, room together, go out to dinner. You didn't have a physio and a manager and a you know, nutritionist and a chef and all these people that 
seem to come along with with the players now. And also, I think part of that great time with the with the fellow players, the caliber of player that I got to play alongside. You know, you think of Pat Bradley, you think of Patty Sheehan, Beth Daniel, you think of Kathy Whitworth. I remember playing once with Kathy Whitworth, who still has the highest number of wins, male or female, ever. But I remember playing one time with Kathy on this par four in Seattle, and there was a big, big pine tree on the left, sort of blocked out part of the fairway. You had to go to the right of it. Anyway, she hit it off the tee. She was first to hit, hit the tree, came down. She wasn't happy, mumbled, mumbled, mumbled. Anyway, the other two, me and the other player hit off and we were starting to walk down the fairway. Well, Kathy grabbed her three-wood out of her caddy's hand and just stormed off down the fairway. It was probably 20 yards ahead of us. All of a sudden, she's at a bowl, so we're like stopping. She hits it. It goes in the hole. Oh. As she's mumbling on the way, they should have taken your card away, Kathy. You just can't play anymore. She just would keep mumbling. Someone's got to take my card away. I just can't play anymore. And lo and behold, she hits a three-wood into the hole for an eagle. So she was a trip. She was a trip. Lovely, lovely woman. A fantastic golfer, as you say. (laughs) Her record in majors is unbelievable, isn't it? 88 88 wins. Mm, Yeah, Yeah, she is uh, incredible. We're going to move to some senior women's golf now. You had a wonderful tie for fourth in the 2019 US Senior Women's Open, which I know you consider one of your finer performances. Would you like to tell us why you rate it so highly? Well, one of the the biggest thrills for me was, you know, having the USGA, I mean, we've been begging for the USGA to put on a US Women's Senior Open for many, many years. Finally, in 2015, they decided that, no, it was 2014 at Pinehurst. We had a meeting with them and you could see that they were leaning towards it. And so eventually they did announce that starting in 2018, we would now have a US Women's Senior Open. So that was at Chicago Golf Club, which was a brilliant, was a thrill in itself. But then the next year they announced that it would be at Pine Needles. And so, of course, I was so excited to go back, what I would call my home away from home, and play in the US Women's Senior Open. At that time, you know, I was still having, I was having, you know, quite a few knee issues, but I was really playing quite well. I felt like I was swinging well. I'd worked hard on my game and, you know, I was determined. You know, I had a couple stem cell treatments on my knees and I was managing to get around. But for me to have played 72 holes as well as I played, and to have done it at Pine Needles and eventually finished fourth behind Helen Alfredson and some really incredible players, I just felt like that was, I mean, I'm not going to say it was a drop the mic moment, but for me right now at age, well, I was 64 at the time, maybe 63, but still to be able to do that when, you know, these players much younger than me and much stronger than me were in the field as well, I felt like that was a real triumph and to have done it at Pine Needles in front of some of the Bell family, yeah. Most people think that success is just about the wins, but it's often about a performance that you know in yourself was a particularly good achievement. Yes, I I think that's very true. You know, I think when you're younger and you're – when you think about it, golfers don't win very often. Their win percentage is pretty darn small compared to a lot of other sports. So you have to take – the small victories, you know, the small process victories or, you know, for me in that case, to finish in the top five in a, in a USGA national championship, senior championship was a huge thrill. And I know that I played some really, really good golf and I beat some really good players. So that, you know, that's definitely right on up there for me, especially at this stage of my career. I mean, I hadn't even played hardly at all. So, you know, mentally I was really in a good place and I remember thinking to myself, I'm just going to put all of those tools that dad taught me, you know, mentally to stay really strong and just to focus on on one shot because I played with a couple of players the first two days who were really not good and were really having a bad, a bad stretch. And so for me to manage to get through mentally, you know, without worrying about what they were doing and just focus on myself, that was a victory in itself too. 
That's another interesting thing to consider, isn't it? That it's not just really about wham, bam, is it? There's course management, there's personal management, and then as you've already said, a good short game. You can go a long way with those, can't you? (laughs) Yes, you really can. And I, I just go back to that Oh, she didn't whip me, but she beat me four and three, Lindy Goggin. And Lindy was one of the best Australian amateurs you could ever hope to watch, Mm. especially with her short game. She had that little mallet putter and, boy, she made some great putts. And that really taught me a lesson and it made me, you know, double down on the amount of work that I put into my short game after that. We move over now to the legends of the LPGA Tour, which is very dear to you. You had a victory in the 2013 Fry's Desert Golf Classic with Betsy King, as well as five appearances in the ISPS Handicap, which is a team's event, including a win in 2013. Now, you're not only a co-founder of the Legends of the LPGA, but you've had a strong involvement within it and you're very passionate about it, aren't you? I really am. You know, back in the late 90s, a bunch of us decided that it would be great for 25 of us to gather together and figure out a way that we could play this together longer. Because, you know, you you can't play on the LPGA forever. There's not too many people that can do that. You know, Julie Inkster and Laura Davies, you know, notwithstanding. And so 2013, I joined the board of directors and I became a vice president under Rosie Jones as the president. And then the following year, I became the president. And I have just really believed in the legends. It was the Legends Tour now. It's called the Legends of the LPGA. And just we we struggled. You know, we've just had a, a tough time over that. Well, now it's just a little bit over 20 years now trying to get tournaments, trying to get a fully-fledged tour like the PGA Tour Champions is now. And I have just wished over the years that the LPGA would pick it up and make it under the umbrella of the LPGA like the Symmetra Tour is, like the Junior Girls Golf and, you know, the LPGA professionals who are the teaching division. It's really the only demographic that's missing. So, with the new commissioner coming in, you know, we have a good relationship with her. We've had some good Zoom meetings with Molly Makusaman. And I hope at some point that the LPGA will, you know, embrace us and make it part of the LPGA and use the full might of the marketing and, and everything that goes with the LPGA to get more tournaments, to get us out there in front of more people. Opportunities were missed. You know, you missed a complete generation, really, when you look at it. You know, Nancy Lopez, Pat Bradley, Patty Sheehan, Beth Daniel, Meg Mount, they've all retired now. They're not playing any golf at all. And so it's a shame. It really is because, you know, it's like if the PGA Tour hadn't picked up their senior tour with, you know, Jack and Arnie and Gary Player and all those guys, where would they be now? You know, now they've got Ernie Els and Phil Mickelson and Jim Furyk and so many great players, you know, keeping their careers going and their household names and our household names are nowhere anymore, which is a shame. They should have been out there back in the early 2000s. So that's my little sort of druthers. I, it's not really a gripe. It's more... Ah, you know, opportunities missed, shall I say. Well, they had such a lot to offer, as you say. There are some opportunities in the wings potentially with players like Kari, uh, Sayri Pack and Annika, if those girls Mm -hmm. were to go over to support that tour. It could be amazing, couldn't it? It really could. And I think it's either yesterday or today, Lorena Ochoa just turned 40. So that's only five years away from a possible, Ooh. you know, Legends Tour, Legends of the LPGA appearance from Lorena. Talk about someone uh, someone sorely missed, but she's very happy there with her wonderful family. You know, Annika did come out of sort of retirement and win the most recent US Women's Senior Open there up in Connecticut. But I know Kari has expressed to me, you know, a desire to support the Legends of the LPGA. Pandemic you know, it's kind of come along in a, in a really difficult time. And of course, you know, we struggled also during the global financial crisis too. So, you know, things have kind of, you know, we've had some obstacles, but, you know, I still believe that there's a product there. It doesn't have to be a 72 hole event every week. There's still people who would love to play with these players and the, our players, our women have great stories and a lot to offer. Mm. So uh, we'll see where it goes. You know, we've got hope. 
Well, you're never lost as long as you've got hope, have you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a little bit of interesting Australian connection, actually, with the legends of the LPGA, with yourself and Jan Stevenson as co-founders, along with Joanne Carner, Big Mama, and Donna Capone-Young, <laughs> who won the Women's Australian Open themselves in 1975 and 76, and the CEO, Jane Geddes, a US Women's Open winner and a frequent visitor to Australia was the inaugural winner of the Australian Ladies Masters. So that's interesting, isn't it? Well, Jane Geddes won the first two and she won them at uh, Palm Meadows and we up there at the Gold Coast and we just kept calling that Jane's Palms. We've got to move it somewhere. So how about we go to Royal Pines, not far down the road, and then ended up being Jane's Pines, at least a couple of them, and, and Kari's uh, certainly as well with eight with eight ladies masters, right? Mm. It's hard to imagine that being surpassed, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. And I'm glad to see that Kari is really starting to get a lot more involved. She's She's spending a lot more time in Australia now that she's not playing full-time on the LPGA, being closer to her family and starting to dabble in golf course architecture, I think can only be a huge asset for Australian golf. Yeah, she's also being a wonderful supporter through the Kari Webb series and her scholarships to emerging players too. So her footprint on Australian golf is greater all the time, isn't it? Well, it is. And now, you know, it's going, we're going to have the Australian Women's PGA Championship and it's going to be called the Kari Webb Cup. I know Kari's just really chuffed about it. Yes, it's a well-deserved honour and perhaps a little overdue actually, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Jane, at what point did you move into broadcasting? Well, it's interesting. When I decided to move into broadcasting was really just after Dad passed away in the early part of 1994. I took a little bit of time away at the end of that year and the beginning of 95, just sort of felt a little bit lost. And I thought to myself, you know what, I could possibly try and, and get a few gigs commentating and still play. And so I got uh, one of my friends to put together a little bit of a resume tape of, you know, some interviews and some time that I was in the booth with Peter and Dad together, along with some playing footage, blah, 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 and send it, you know, to NBC, ESPN, Golf Channel at the time was just fledgling. I did send it to them, but they kind of already had a few people. And both Tommy Roy at NBC and Larry Cirillo at ESPN thought that, yeah, they'd like to give me a go. And so the first event that I actually did was the Solheim Cup for NBC in Wales. I'm like, okay, <laughs> nothing like being thrown into the deep end. But the nice thing about working for both of those wonderful producers was they were very patient. You didn't, it wasn't like one or two events, oh, you can't do it, you're done. You know, they they kind of led you along and they taught you as time went on exactly what they needed from you as an on-course commentator. And then also eventually, you know, segueing into being in the analyst role uh, at different times. So, you know, I had a wonderful career with NBC, did a lot of women's opens, did, you know, many other events as well. And then ESPN, I had a bunch of LPGA tournaments along with Golf Channel. And so it's something I've really enjoyed. I felt like when I was still playing and when I was doing the TV, I learned a lot. I learned that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to hit every shot perfectly. And I learned how the great players manage their emotions and manage their games. So, I mean, talk about having a front row seat. Mm. Arnica, Kari, Sayri, Lorena. You can't ask for better people to learn from. And and I think I did really put it into pretty good use for the years, you know, that I had left on the LPGA. You're mainly working with the PGA Tour now, am I right there? Yes. Mostly I, I did work some for Golf Channel and then, you know, they started to get a few different players coming in, a few younger people involved. And so at some point I thought, I need to find another outlet. And that time was when PGA Tour started doing this digital platform called PGA Tour Live, where they cover two groups in the morning, full 18 holes, and two groups in the afternoon, full 18 holes each day, and put that out on a stream, you know, that's a subscription-based product. And yeah, it's uh, it's been terrific. I've really enjoyed doing that. It's hardly a job, you know, you just walk around and talk about people playing golf and it's fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. 
With your various roles within golf, you've really had a unique insight into the way the game has evolved. A lot's changed, obviously, since you first joined the LPGA Tour. How would you describe professional golf now? Is it still competitive sport with prize money? Is it sport-based entertainment? Is it a combination of both or is it something else? Well, it's big business now. I mean, prize money, you know, I can't even how many times it's doubled, tripled to the nth degree. It's big time. And these players now are treated as such. You know, they I don't think they have as good a time traveling, mm-hmm. you know, where we would drive six or eight hours to the next tournament. They have to fly six or eight hours to the next tournament. So it's a lot different. I still think it is competitive. But I think it has evolved a little bit into entertainment because there's a lot of different formats and different opportunities for players. I do think you still have to think of it, even back when when I was playing as entertainment, because you have to realise these people that you're playing in front of have paid good money to come and watch you. Yes, they want to watch you perform, but they want a little bit of you. Mm. You know, they they want a little bit of a glimpse into you and your personality. And they don't want to watch people throwing clubs and having a temper tantrum. You know, they can do that themselves. They expect a little bit more. And I think as a player, especially nowadays, you need to realise that. You've got to let them in and then you'll set yourself apart and then you'll reap the rewards as a consequence. There's quite a lot for the fledgling professional to deal with these days, isn't there, as we've just discussed. They're a business entity from the moment they sign the dotted line, aren't they? Do you think that we are preparing emerging players well enough to be self-sufficient, to face all the pressures and the demands on their time? That's a tough question. You know, I look back at my career, I was 25 when I turned professional. I'd already worked as a pharmacist. You know, my experience, life experiences are a lot different than, say, someone, you know, like uh, Lydia Ko and Lexi Thompson, who, you know, turned professional when they were 17. I mean, Lydia's winning professional events when she's 14, 15 years old. You need good people around you when you're that young, because there's no way you can handle everything that comes at you on your own. I mean, you couldn't travel on your own. Whether we're preparing them enough, I do think so more now because you've got more developmental tours on whether it be the men's or the women's side. You know, countries all over the world have their own tours. They have their own developmental tours. Look at what South Korea has done. They do prepare their players for the next level. And I think the US is doing that with the Symmetra Tour. The PGA has developmental tours all over the world in China, Latin America, the Corn Ferry Tour, Canadian Tour. So I think they are. But yes, the pressures are very different. I think now you look at social media, you look at just media in general. Mm. It's much more scrutiny on individual players than there ever was when I was playing. Well, all my family knew about was a maybe if I rang them, if I did well, or, you know, a score in the paper. You know, there wasn't live streams or social media barrages of what's happening, you know, where you're playing. So, yeah, very, very different. With that level of scrutiny that they're facing, there has come now an increased emphasis on the mental well-being of players, which I think is a really good thing. It's considered healthy for players to have a focus on something other than just preparing for tournament play. What Mm were some of your interests outside golf? Oh, my gosh. Well, as I mentioned, you know, most of the players would travel, you know, by car or whether they had a van or an RV or something like that from tournament to tournament. And for me, one of my hobbies was antiquing. You know, I used to love, especially when we played in the uh, the northeast or the Midwest, some great spots to go antiquing, fishing. Many of us would love to fish. Corning, New York, you know, the home of all the Corning wear. There was a local fellow who loved fishing. He had his own bass boat and he would take us out one of the little lakes that was fully stocked. We'd used to rotate whoever was playing in the morning while it was their turn in the afternoon. And I mean, we had the best time. Once we put our practice in after the round, you know, we said, okay, I've got a few hours. What am I going to do? Not that many people went to the gym after they played golf back then. They, they would <laughs> do their workouts, you know, or some of them would run, 
you know, mostly in the off season. And then, you know, you would do a little bit during the week off and things like that, but not many players would spend all afternoon in the gym. You know, we'd, we'd rather go do something fun like antiquing or going hiking or fishing or whatever. So those are the sorts of things that we used to like to do. Coming from South Australia, I think you've got a bit of an interest in wine too, don't you? I do, actually. You know, I'm sitting here in the kitchen looking at my little wine cooler. It's probably got 100 bottles or so. A good number of them are South Australian. One of my dear friends who I played golf with as a schoolgirl uh, is Prue Henschke. And of course, Prue married, uh, she was Prue Weir married into the Henschke family. It's a very famous wine name in South Australia or Australia-wide, worldwide now. And Prue's the viticulturist. So every time I go home, she either comes out to the golf you know, she's a keen golfer. I'll go up there and have a little walk around the Hill of Grace Vineyard and uh, Stephen will give me a tasting. And yeah, so I'm very much involved in, or not involved, but big fan of Australian wine. I am involved in a little new venture that a couple of my friends down in Phoenix just started called Three Sheilas Wines and Spirits. And it's a little distributing company, female owned, and I'm their brand ambassador, Mm. which is rather fun because they've got a line of craft spirits, some Australian wine, New Zealand wine, South African, mostly Southern Hemisphere stuff. And so, you know, I'm involved in kind of getting the word out, trying to get some appointments and getting some of our products into different restaurants, wine bars, you know, things like that. So that's something I've just started doing this year. And really enjoying it. It's kind of fun. I don't know how if it's going to be super lucrative, but it's a it's a fun pastime while I'm not able to play golf at the moment. Well, it's something for us to look out for. And of course, the name Three Sheilas sounds very Australian, doesn't it? <laughs> it's very, uh, very Australian. Yes, exactly. Now, I know you were deeply saddened by the 2019 Black Summer when much of Australia was savaged by bushfire. It's can't be easy really for an expat to be watching your country in so much distress. And I know you felt that too. What touched you the most, Jane, watching what was unfolding here? Well, I think, you know, obviously the loss of life, the loss of livestock, but I think the loss of the huge gum trees, the fauna that we lost, you know, the kangaroos, the koalas, you know, all of the you know, indigenous species that, you know, are so special that make Australia such a unique place. I think probably, I mean, obviously Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia were just savage. Kangaroo Island just really broke my heart. I've been over to Kangaroo Island a number of times and and it's a special place. It's uh, uh, probably one of Australia's best kept secrets is Kangaroo Island. And to know that you know, fully half the island was just decimated by fire and such a loss of many livestock, obviously, from, you know, all the different farmers that have lost their livelihoods, the koalas especially. And so, you know, I've donated at different times, you know, to koala rescue and all of the wildlife rescue is very meaningful to me. What these people do is just absolutely fantastic. And, yeah, I remember coming back, you know, for the Australian Women's Open you know, when that was happening, it was just really sad. Mm, it was heartbreaking, wasn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your Twitter handle, which is a bit of fun, at Crafty Mate, <laughs> sums up what's important to you in your life, really. Now, Crafty, of course, was not only your nickname, but that of your beloved father. And mate, like Sheila, is very Australian. That Australian birthright really is important to you, isn't it? Along with your family. Absolutely. You know, that'll always be home wherever I lived. I've made, you know, a wonderful life over here in America and I'm very grateful for everything that I have. I'm a dual citizen. But Australia will always be home and I love coming home. I love coming home to see my family. As I said, lost both my parents at a fairly young age. My stepmom, Judy, dad's second wife, is still alive in Adelaide in a rest haven nursing home and I talk to her, you know, at least once a month. She's a real sweetheart. But Neil, just one brother, but he has, you know, three kids and Lucy, his oldest, has a little girl, Millie, who, you know, I've got to see twice in her first six months of life. She was born in June of 19. And so I've missed out on seeing her in person. I try and, you know, do FaceTime, but she's not really interested in listening or seeing Auntie Jane, although I love seeing her. 
But yes, family is very, very important to me. And I've missed out the last couple of years in being home. I was lucky I was, you know, I mean, that was when the LPGA, when the world shut down really was when I got back, you know, in 20 uh, from the Australian Women's Open. So it seems like it's been a long, long time since I've been home. And I really hope next year I can get home and, and see everybody and have a bit of a holiday and, you know, just uh, get my soak in my the smells and the sounds and, you know, just everything about Australia, the, the coffee, the, the gum trees, the birds, you know, just the scenery is unique. And yeah, I'll always be an Aussie, Karen. Well, Jane, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk with you today and learn more about your amazing life in golf. Over the years, you've left a giant footprint on Australian golf, not just women's golf. And we all hope to see those feet and healthy knees back on home soil again soon. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure and delighted to have been able to talk with you today. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Jane. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the story of Jane's amazing life in golf as much as I have. Jane is one of those women on whose shoulders we stand as we explore the role of women in all corners of the game. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let fellow golfers know we're here either by word of mouth, sharing a link, or leaving a favourable rating or review. The more people who come to the show, the more visible we can make the stories of women in golf and of the men who support them. If you'd like to have new episodes delivered completely free of charge to your phone as soon as they're available, you can hit the subscribe button next to the T for Two podcast on your phone podcast app. And if you have any questions or have someone in mind whose story you think might be interesting, please feel free to shoot me an email at hello at tfor2.com.au. for 2 is produced on the traditional country of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Victoria and offers respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you for our next Tea Time Together. Our next guest is also someone whose story you will enjoy. So look out for that one. Until then, have fun in golf. Thanks for listening to Tea for Two. To check out other episodes and to keep up to date with what's happening in women's golf, please head over to tfor2.com.au.